Good morning, everyone. It's, uh, it's a privilege to be able to uh, just share briefly with you this morning. My Christian journey began without my knowing, uh, really, via a Christian upbringing and uh, Christian schooling, and perhaps that's the situation for many of you, that uh, being born into a Christian family and being uh, educated within a Christian context uh, had an impact uh, about which I was largely uh, unaware for quite some time. And I realised the need to get a little more personally involved from the age of about 16 when the gospel was uh, presented to me at a youth rally in a way that I hadn't quite heard it before. Uh, having sat through hundreds of sermons and been through all sorts of Christian kinds of things, uh, on this particular occasion, uh, the Spirit uh, made it clear what it was actually uh, all about. So some 40 years ago, uh, I, in fact, um, turned to Jesus and became a Christian. And from that point on, my spiritual journey has had its share of ups and downs, and uh, no doubt many of you can attest to the same thing. Having been brought up the son of an Anglican minister, it will come as no surprise for me to tell you that believers' baptism was not a pressing issue uh, over the years within that particular uh, denomination. Uh, there's a different approach, and I'd been uh, splashed rather than dipped. Uh, however, things uh, change, and my wife and I came to this church family a couple of years ago, and uh, we want to contribute in a fuller way. And that means seeking membership, which in turn got me thinking anew about baptism, something that I'd thought about sort of off and on, uh, but without really giving um, a great deal of thought to. And so uh, I looked a little more deeply and uh, went along to baptism classes and uh, prayed about it. And uh, it got me thinking, as I said about it, and how Jesus himself modelled it for us. And as Jonathan mentioned, how Jesus baptised others, how Jesus himself was baptised, and how he commands us to baptise people who are believers in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So uh, here I am. I'm grateful to God for his saving grace these 40 years uh, and the opportunity, somewhat belatedly, to do as scripture bids us and act out in the physical what Jesus has accomplished for me in the spiritual. Let me just share with you a verse from John 5:24. Uh, this is from the message translation and it says, it's urgent that you listen carefully to this. Anyone here who believes what I'm saying right now and aligns himself with the Father has at this very moment the real lasting life and is no longer condemned to be an outsider. This person has taken a giant step from the world of the dead to the world of the living. And baptism, for me, symbolises that. Thanks for giving me his uh, testimony just to read out um, for you tonight, today. Um, I'm known as a pretty quick kind of person. Pretty quiet kind of person. <laughs> Trying to make, that makes you talk, doesn't it? I'll make my testimony short and sweet. In the last couple of years, my life has changed dramatically. Two years ago, I married the person I've been waiting my whole life for. And today, together, we have chosen to become Christians as an adult, at time, I find myself lost and alone. And I started drinking every weekend. I had a lot of emptiness. But now I have found God. I have someone to talk to always. And I'm no longer alone. I'm so very glad that God is in my life. Thank you, Mark. 
And we look forward to witnessing you back to you. Being baptised today makes me feel so happy and loved. I know that God has always been with me. I just never really understood it completely until recently. I've come to a new understanding about God and Jesus and what it means to be forgiven, to have a personal relationship with him. I was brought up in a loving Christian family home and I went to a Catholic school when I was of primary age. At the age of nine years, my family changed religion. At this new church, I learnt to pray by talking to God on my own and with my family. I attended Bible study, we had family home evenings, and I no longer feared God. He was my friend in my walk of life. When I was a bit older, a couple of very upsetting and life-changing things happened to me that were out of my control. I became scared and felt that I had done wrong. They happened to me at a very vulnerable, impressionable time of my life, which changed my attitude and my outlook on life. I took my feelings inside myself, and for the first time in my life, I felt guilt, worthlessness, and developed little respect for myself. I went on to marry a controlling, abusive man. And on top of this, my 16-year-old brother was killed in a terrible accident by gate crashes at his friend's birthday party. In the same week, my best friend's baby died of a very rare heart disease and I was due to give birth to my second child. My father was a very highly trained SAS soldier in the army. He had also served for our country in Vietnam. When this happened, my dad couldn't function and he went on to be diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. This was the second son that my parents had buried. My family and I suffered through a stressful time and my loving family structure fell apart and not one of us dealt with any of the grief. My marriage broke down and the following years led me away from Christian, my Christian life. I have two beautiful children, Stephanie and Jared, and they are both grown up now and very healthy. But there were many, many lows as a mum. I had to make choices and to some extent I had no other choice. They led me away from my family, my children, for almost seven years. Depression set in and I was living day by day and just existing. I woke up one day three year and a half years ago and pleaded with the hospital to look after me because I was scared I might harm myself. I was in my second long-term abusive relationship and this time alcohol and drugs were involved. I had no money, no family and no hope. One bad thing had happened after another and my life was spiralling out of control. On the 1st of August 2005, I arrived on my mum's doorstep, mum and dad's doorstep, 37 years old and feeling very hopeless. I started doing a lot of thinking, walking and spending time alone and what I have just recently realised, praying. I slowly got my life back together. I also have become aware that I have always prayed to God to keep my children and family close. That prayer has been answered. Soon after I moved here, I met Mark, and although I was apprehensive at first, we married a year later, and my son Jared and my daughter Stephanie walked me down the aisle, along with my mum and dad. Mark is also getting baptised today, and we share the same beliefs and both dearly love our God and our newfound church. I am really pr proud to be Mark's wife, and our marriage is growing and becoming one of respect and love for each other. I have still have some work to do with my family, but we are all close again, and I know my Heavenly Father is working overtime in our lives. 
I was introduced to Wodonga District Baptist Church by some lovely ladies at a fashion parade and then another night at a makeup party. I noticed something different in their lives. They had a sense of fun, laughter and love for one another and they had a beautiful friendship circle. At the same time, I didn't feel left out. They involved me. This led me to come to church one Sunday and eventually I made a decision to ask Jesus into my life in Gail's office. I asked the Lord for forgiveness and asked him to watch over and keep my children and family close. I knew that day he had been with me all the time and it reminded me of the footprints problem. I felt this presence so strongly and I thought I had run my tears dry in the past but that day I cried again and a lot more in the next few weeks after but this time my tears were for contentment and happiness. I have been held up by God during the lowest times of my life and I am so very blessed that he believed in me before I believed in myself. I know that my God regards me as an important, worthwhile child of God. Amen. Well, wasn't that just great? And uh, thank you for leading us, Sandy, in that time of worship. And why don't we just now, Mark and... Julie, just a certificate to say congratulations on your baptism and now you'll be able to remember this on, uh, for years to come. You'll be able to pull it out and show all your guests and dinner visitors and everything like that. There's one for the two of you in there. And David Dahl, David. There you go, there's a certificate for you. Congratulations. Why don't we say one more time, great stuff. And just to let you know, uh, just in a couple of weeks' time, we'll be gathering together again. Uh, anyone who's interested, what we have simply here for those who are interested in knowing more about any of these things, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be baptised, what it means to become a member of this church, and what it means to be uh, just, just who is this weird group of people called the Baptists? So if any of those questions interest you, we've got an inquirer's course and you don't have to sign up for this course and sign your life away. It's actually a good way just to understand more about it so you might come to a decision to become a Christian or to be baptised or to become a member of this church. That'll be happening in two weeks' time and if you'd like to do that, you could just write on the blue card, you know, uh, put me in the inquirer's course and uh, those that are interested will be meeting again um, to consider baptism and church membership and becoming a Christian. Uh, I remember when I was uh, baptised and I was pretty proud of myself. I thought, I'm baptised. I become a Christian. You know, I knew a lot about Jesus when I became a Christian. But now I was baptised, I was the real deal. Ask me any questions. You know, I'm the, I kind of know a lot now. Everyone knows it. I'm full on for Jesus. And I'm sure I can tell you guys, you know, think the same. No, I'm only kidding. But for me, when that happened, there was a sense of, you know, I was the guy now who my friends or anyone who was struggling could come to know what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, but it wasn't too long until I found myself thrown into the middle of challenging situations that I didn't know the answers to, that I realised there were more things that I really didn't know than what I thought I knew. Ever have that experience? And you think you know it all. 
And you kind of act as though you know it all. And yet, suddenly, there's some questions that start coming up. And in the midst of that terrible moment, you know what I found myself tempted to do at that age? A couple of things. I pretended I knew it all still. So I'd have a tough question. And instead of saying, I don't really know the answer to that, I'd kind of just come up with a glib, simple thing that sort of summed it up and then just sort of said, there you go, and kind of walked away or talked about something different before they had a chance to respond. Or the other thing I'd kind of do is go and say, look, I really don't know. I'll try and find it out. One of the hardest things to ever be when you're trying to look like you know it all is in a situation where you don't know it all. And I I don't know if you're anything like me, but you can find that place very painful and want to get out of it. And I know there were many times when I probably said things that I wasn't too sure about just so that all their answers were given that I thought I knew. But what I found too is there were times when I was thrown into pressure where I actually grew in my knowledge. Uh, When I started going to school, there was a Jehovah's Witness who started sharing with my friends his faith. And so what he would do, he would tell them all of this, and then my friends would come to me and go, Jonathan, is this true? Is this true? And so I found myself going, I don't know. I better find out. So I'd read and I'd pray and I'd read my Bible and I'd talk to mature Christians and come back and say, you know, no, there's a complete difference between Christianity and Jehovah's Witness. They don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe in that. They're completely different beliefs. And so I grew in my understanding. So there are some things that I started to really know for sure, but at the same time there were some things that I really began to not really know for sure. Like I remember when I was a pastor ordained by the Baptist Union and you know, had a big library of books and everything and I got a, a phone call saying that our key pastoral carer had just been tragically killed in a car accident. And when I gathered with her and the family and we started to talk, there were people that she'd been visiting. Like it's hard to answer deeper questions of why when someone had morning tea with the person that morning and the evening before she'd been at places, people's houses for dinner and was pastorally caring for them and there was about four or five pastoral visits she'd made in the day and day before and as the funeral gathered together, I found myself in that sort of place again where I felt uneasy. I just didn't know the answers. And I was tempted to be glib or make something to try and solve everybody's problem just because I felt uncomfortable. Ever been there? I mean, um, there are things that I've grown more and more convinced of as I've grown in my faith. And one of them is that I don't know everything. And that it's okay not to know everything, even though that's painful. 
Maybe you've found that yourself when you've been in the midst of grief or suffering and you're trying to find easy answers. And maybe you've stood by the graveside of your wife or your husband, of your mother or your father, of your son or your daughter, as they were buried. And you've tried to ask why. Or maybe you've sat with people at a hospital and while an illness has taken their life from them and someone who's been dearest to you. And perhaps you've looked up to the heavens and cried, why, why, God? Well, how can we respond in those times? What what can we do? in those horrible times when we know a lot of things, but there's some things we just don't know. Well, if you're here for the first week this week, this is our third week in a series on Job. And for the time remaining, I'm going to cover where we're up to. And it's from Job, which is just one book left of Psalms, you remember. Psalms is in the middle of the Bible. And in, in that book so far, we've heard about Job, a man who's godly, a man who's righteous, a man who really cares about his, his sin and offering uh, sacrifices and is someone who is righteous. In fact, he was probably one of the most righteous people that have ever lived, the Bible tells, tells us. And then we find out that God allows Satan to, take, to attack him. And he attacks the things that he has around him. He loses his children. They, they're killed tragically. He loses cattle. He loses his servants. And a man who was very wealthy and prosperous, who had lots of family that God had blessed him with, finds himself without these things that were dear to him. And you remember that in the midst of that time, instead of... Uh, you know, cursing God or throwing in his faith, he said, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then remember last week we looked at uh, this again and we saw that God and Satan again had a discussion and God allowed Satan to inflict more pain on Job and this time went right to the core of who, uh, to, of his body. He said you can touch him but you can't kill him. And so we saw that Job was inflicted with boils from the top of his head right to the soles of his feet. Painful boils, we're told. And we find him at the end of our passage last week outside the city gates on a rubbish heap, we think. It says he is in ashes and it seems like that's out on the city dump away from everybody, too horrible to look at, too smelly to be around. And he picks up pottery and starts to scrape the spoils and the sores. And What a terrible situation. And we're asking ourselves all the time, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people in this series? And last week we looked at the fact that even though all this was happening to Job, God delights in the fact that we praise him even in the midst of our suffering. That God's not bad, he's good. 
and he loves Job and he delights in every time, even while he's suffering, that he praises God. And you remember last week that we kind of said, sometimes we've got to realise that we don't know it all, but God does know it all. And Job, even in that situation, didn't lose his integrity. He kept on. He believed that God was good. And he kept praising him in spite of his situation. Well, in the time that remains, we're going to go from chapter 2, verse 11, right up to Job 37. We're going to go through verse by verse. No, we're not. It's all right. It's all right. But we are going to cover a lot. And the reason we're going to cover this section is because this is now a section where Job is sitting around and his friends come. And they gather around and they start to uh, be with Job. And I want you to notice that these friends are in the situation that I shared with you and that you often find yourself in the midst of seeing suffering around you and not really knowing what to do. And they have some responses that we can often give. And today, as we look at this, we want to understand what some good responses for us to give. And you'll see in Job chapter 2 and verse 11 that his friends start off by doing um, the right thing. Like his friends begin by actually coming alongside and helping him. Look what it says. When, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, he's incidentally one of the shortest people in the Bible. He's uh, just like the same as Nehemiah. You know Nehemiah? This is Bill, Bildad the Shuhite, right? <laughs> he's actually not the shortest. There's one shorter, and that's the jailer who fell asleep on his watch. So that's, uh, there you go. Sorry, they're sick, aren't they? Silly. Um, and the largest woman in the Bible, you know that one? The woman of Samaria. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Heard it before, yeah. Anyway, let's move on, shall we? Uh, Zophar the Namathite, and these three friends heard all about the trouble that had come upon him, and they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. You know, that is great stuff for friends to do. Have you ever noticed how hard that is, though? Like, it's so easy when people are hurting to not be near them. Uh, It takes a step of courage. I don't know if ever, like you, you you feel like, oh, they probably would just want to be by themselves and they probably want time alone. And yet we're we're friends and we can make all different excuses why we probably wouldn't know what to say. It's scary for us and sometimes we stay away. Well, the friends, I want you to know, they came. They came a distance and they travelled. And look what happens when they saw him. When they, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognise him. And they began to weep aloud. It grieved their hearts. These were dear friends. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. This is a sign of, of mourning for a, 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 a one who is near death. And they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights and no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Gee, wouldn't you like to be a friend like that? 
I mean, they stayed there for seven days and seven nights, observing Job in his pain and in his suffering. And this they did really well. But after this initial beginning, Job explains the dilemma after seven days and seven nights of what he's feeling. And he's not feeling very good. He says in, verse, in chapter 3, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, A boy is born. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it and no light shine on it. My darkness, may darkness and deep shadow claim it once more. May a cloud settle over. He's saying, uh, the day I was born was not a blessing to me. It's a curse because look how much I'm suffering. And oh, he says in this first chapter, oh, I wish I could be dead. It's so bad. It's terrible. And in the midst of seeing Job and seeing his pain and in seeing all of this, after staying quiet for seven days, the friends start to speak. And when they do, they start to attack him verbally. It starts off quietly and gets bigger and bigger. And after each assault, Job defends himself. And this cycle of attack and defence and counter-attack is repeated three times until eventually Job explodes in one long outburst, reducing his friends to silence. And even then, he doesn't convince them that he's innocent. You know why? Because in their minds, they'd already made up their minds about the reason for his suffering. And the reason was simple. simple. This is what they thought. All suffering is due to wickedness or to sin. Job is suffering, therefore he is wicked. What could be simpler? This is what they had always known. Uh, Suffering, wickedness. If you suffer, you've done something wrong. You're wicked. That's what's happening. And look at some of the things. We'll just briefly have a look at some of the things that happened. Uh, Eliphaz the Temanite, he reasoned that Job is suffering because he's sinned. And he's found in Job chapter 4 and chapter 5 and 15 and 22, those chapters. And his advice to Job was, go to God and present your case to him. And look, in, in Job, uh, his response to that is, you know, stop um, assuming that I'm guilty. You know, I'm not. I'm not guilty, he says. And Eliphaz seems to be more of a theologian, you know, one of those deep thinkers that are trying to wrestle everything out and... And he's relying on observation. He's looking at Job and his experience and he makes his assessment of Job's situation through observing what he's seeing and his experience from the past. And he seems to be a quite considerate fellow who has a philosophical outlook on life. And one of the key verses that he says is, as I have observed, you know, he's observing and that those who plough evil and those who sow trouble reap it. In other words, you've sinned. 
In Job 5.17, he says, Blessed is the man whom God corrects, so do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. There's something you've done wrong, Job, and you need to realise it. And the, and the concept of God that Eliphaz has is that God is a righteous God and he wouldn't be doing this if there wasn't something wrong. Bill had the shoe height. He is in Job chapter 8 and verse 18 to 25. Uh, jo- sorry, Job chapter 8 and chapter 18 and chapter 25. And he reasoned that Job uh, won't admit his sin, so he's still suffering. So Bildad says, you know, come on, you have sinned, it's just, you won't admit it, and if you just admit it, then the suffering would finish. He asks Job, how long will you keep going like this? In Job 8 and verse 2. And, and Job's response was, I will say to God, tell me the charge you are bringing against me. That's what Job says. You know, if there is a charge, what, what is it, God? You know, tell me that. And Bildad seems to be more of a bit of a uh, historian and a legalist. And he, he's kind of looking at the situation. He relies on tradition to make his assessment of why Job is suffering. He's more argumentative than Eliphaz. And uh, he comes across as the voice of history. You know, this is never, I've never seen this before. So from my, from the past, the generations have said this. Look what he says in Job 8.8. Ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned. For surely God does good things to good people and bad things to bad people. His concept of God is a judge, an immovable lawgiver. Zophar, the Namathite, he uh, is found in Job 11 and 20 especially, and he reasoned that Job's sins uh, deserves even more suffering than he's experiencing now. You think you're bad with boils, you know, you're just getting half of it. It's kind of the the thing that he's saying. And his advice to Job was, you know, get rid of your sins. Get rid of them. Uh, Job's response was, I will be proved innocent. You know, he admits that he, he, uh, you know, he's not saying he's perfect, but he's saying there's no sin that I've done that is is causing this. You know, Zorfar was kind of a, a moralist or a dogmatist. And he relies on assumption. You know, if this happened, then that. Or if this and that. You're suffering, then this must have been the cause. And he's rude. And he's blunt. And he doesn't hold back. He's the voice of orthodoxy. This is how it should be. And he says, you are sinning, Joe. And his advice is, the wicked are short-lived. This is what it says. That the mirth of the wicked is brief. The joy of the godless lasts but a moment. So he's saying to him here that you have little joy while you sin. So stop it. His concept of God is that he is unbending and merciless. We could kind of say uh, this morning with friends like these, (laughs) who needs enemies, say? Uh, Job added to his uh, boils and his pain and his loss now has dearly 
friends who have well-meaning advice that they are coming around and they are no holes barred giving it to him. Their theology was neat but narrow. They had no loose ends in their theology. It explained things remarkably well. So that, in fact, you didn't even have to bother thinking for yourselves. You just accepted what people had told you and it was all done for them. Their theory of retribution, that God punishes bad people, was just how it is and get over it. You know, that, that's what it is. You don't even have to think about this. And they didn't even consider that they were talking to a human being who might have been experiencing something different. They could be either, the, the facts could be either conveniently ignored for them or forced to fit into their theories and theology. Um, these people would have actually said, you know, the title of that series you've got, Jonathan, it's wrong. Because good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people and there's no way that bad things happen to good people. So don't even ask the question. You know, the Bible teaches that there is some suffering that is punishment for sin. But not all suffering is to be viewed in that way. Gail shared about that in the first week. And Joe's friends were doing this. They were mistaking part of the truth for the whole truth. And they were assuming that because... Uh, this may be generally the way that it has to be the case in every single circumstance. And they wanted to have it all fit neatly and when it didn't, they had to squeeze it into that. They add to his suffering, Job's suffering, in a terrible way. They make it worse. They're adding now to him guilt and uh, trying to make him even lose the one thing that he's holding on to with all that he has, his integrity before God. And now they're saying, admit that you've sinned. Admit that there's something that you have done. Admit that you have lacked that integrity before God. You know what I think that these chapters that we see Uh, here that we've just skimmed on today show us I think that God wants us to realise that as we read these stories and hear about what his friends have said that God doesn't want us to know it all but he does want us to know him God doesn't expect us to know every answer and to put everything into a Uh, neat picture of this is how God always works and he always does this. But he does want us to know him. And sometimes being in the position of not knowing shows great faith. I think for us today, just two things that we can do as we go is in the midst of suffering 
I want to encourage you to recognise that there are some things we know about God, but there are some things that we may never know. I think that as I've grown, my knowledge of him has grown in a number of areas. I've understood the gospel so wholeheartedly that I believe it with every inch of my body that God created this world, that we have turned our back on him and the only way to be reconciled with Christ, with God is through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. And when we put our faith in him, when we turn from our sin and put our faith in him, we have forgiveness and eternal life and he's created, he's, he's waited, prepared for us eternity that will be, there. I'm, I'm convinced of that. There's no, I've grown in that, I'm certain of that. But you know, there are some things that I still just don't know. Why one suffers here? Why one suffers there? Why one person has this go wrong in their lives and why they don't? And I think it's important today today, to know that there are some things we should know and we will know more and more as we grow in our faith and they'll become precious to us. But there will be some things that we won't know. And you know what I think we should do right in the midst of that? is sit in the unknowing and just let God know that. I mean, we were there last night with Trish Swaby and the family. It's, she loved God so much. She was such a, a lovely woman, a faith-filled woman. And in the midst of it, you know, why? I don't know. But I do know God is good. We said it last week. But I don't know why this happened now. But I do know God is good. I'm clinging to that. So the first thing is recognise what you don't know. And, and the second thing is to hold and cling to his promises in the midst of those times. Recognise what you don't know, but hold and cling to what you do know about the promises of God. Yesterday and in the days before, Trish asked us to read certain psalms to her. Psalm 139 was one which talks about the the fact that God knows everything, that he's all-powerful, that he's with us all the time. And she just wanted that read. Can you read me Psalm 139, she said. What's going on there? I just want to know what's true about God. Because at times like this, I don't know all the answers, but I want to cling to what I do know about him. He's powerful. He's with me. He knows everything. We read to her about the fact that Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he, and he said, you know, in my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going to prepare a place to, for you. We clung to what we do know. And I want to encourage you as we close now that as you face suffering, learn from Job's friends and don't be Job's comforters. That's where that saying, oh yeah, Job's comforter. Well, these are the kind of comforters that he had. Those that have forgotten that they were talking to a person and it just started coming up with all the theories and reasons why, for things that perhaps we'll never know why. 
And when you are with people, you know, recognise what you don't know and cling to what you do know and walk with people hand in hand. Why don't we pray together? Oh God, we thank you that we don't know everything. We really do. Because God, sometimes we try and uh, be like you. We try and act as if we know everything and we're all knowing and we've got it all together. But God, we realise you're God and we're not. And right in the midst of suffering today, some people are uh, right here today wondering why. Some people this morning, God, are having to speak with people who are suffering deeply. And God, we would just pray that you would help us to cling closer and closer to the things we know about you. The promises that you've given us. The love that you assure us that comes to us through Jesus Christ. And God, for the things that we don't know, may even those things increase our faith in you that you are good and that you know the things we don't know. And it's okay. And help us to be those that run and are with those that are suffering. Spend time with them and love them. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name. Amen.